everybody. Welcome to Waking Up to Narcissism, episode 59. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and host of the Virtual Couch Podcast and soon many other podcasts. Murder on the Couch, Q Ominous Music, is a podcast that I'm doing with my daughter, Sydney, and she is a huge true crime fan, and I am going to throw my therapist spin on some cases. We've already got a few episodes recorded, and I just, I cannot wait for you to see this. My daughter, Sydney, is hilarious and adorable, and the energy that I think we have back and forth is so much fun. And if you look in the show notes of today's episode, there's going to be a link to a YouTube clip of the podcast. So stay tuned. That one is coming soon. And Waking Up to Narcissism, I always feel like I want to say the musical, but that is not a thing. But Waking Up to Narcissism, the premium question and answer trailer is up on Apple Podcast, and the subscription, the ability to subscribe is I want to say it's it's there now because these podcasts are evergreen and hopefully that will be figured out by the time this one even makes it to the air. But I know that there have been people that have heard the trailer and then have contacted me and said, there's no way to subscribe. And uh, bless your heart, wanting to subscribe because it will be a small monthly fee and the proceeds will go to a nonprofit that is is designed to help people with the things that they need that are in emotionally unhealthy relationships, whether it's therapy or legal costs. So there's a lot of fun and exciting fun the wrong word when I'm talking about people that are in these emotionally unhealthy relationships, I'm grateful to be able to do the work that I do. And that podcast is only there because I think that my assistant Naomi and I have a, a hundred or so questions already that have come in about narcissism and emotional immaturity. And so I really want to start answering those and then the ability to help fund this nonprofit is going to be incredible. Really just go to TonyOverbay.com and sign up for my newsletter and that will that will get you where you need to go because we're going to have a lot of information there. And I can't help but uh, say this. If you are somebody who is on TikTok, find at Virtual Couch on TikTok. One of my daughters is, is putting out a lot of the content that I've created, and that has been fun to watch the reaction there. So that is where I definitely feel like an old man, but it is fun to see the feedback. So find Virtual Couch at TikTok or at Tony Overbay underscore LMFT on Instagram. So let's get to today's episode. We're going to talk about this is the fourth installment of the Death by a Thousand Cuts concept. And these are the episodes that I feel like resonate the most where people start to realize that they are not crazy or all of these small things that happen in their relationships. And again, it can be the male or the female. I want to acknowledge that. And it can be in a relationship with the spouse or an adult parent or child or entity or boss, friends, you name it. If that is an emotionally unhealthy relationship, sometimes when you want to express why you don't want to continue in a relationship, people will say, well, why? And when you tell them things that just don't seem as as significant as you feel that they should be in order for you to have space or set up boundaries or leave a relationship, it can feel pretty maddening. So it is this concept of as if you were dying by a thousand cuts. And just for fun, I did go and look up where the death by a thousand cuts comes from. And it was, uh, it, it appears, and here I say this, and I am going to tell you that I Googled it. So not really exactly sure how correct or accurate this is, but it's on Wikipedia. And so that means it's correct, right? Death by a Thousand Cuts is a form of torture and execution originating from Imperial China and where people literally would be given a, a tiny little cuts. And there's a belief that it could take hours and hours. You have to lose, I think, 40% of your blood to eventually die. So that took a turn. But the concept is that these little 
hurts in a relationship or little wounds that eventually becomes too much the way these, these little events, these negative events slowly, but surely in these unnoticed increments then grow into these big gaping wounds that then you do feel like you have lost yourself. There has been a death of the relationship or a death of self. And so I, I reached out to my private women's Facebook group and said, Hey, it's time for a fourth episode of death by a thousand cuts. And so the group has grown significantly. And so there were enough responses within about a 12 hour period that we could do episodes four five and six right now. And so I'm sure that this will be a continuing series. So let me just, I'm going to read a lot of the examples. Everybody that is sharing the examples has given me permission. And then I'm sure that I will go off on some tangents and riffs about my thoughts on the reading between the lines of some of these examples. So one person just, in essence, started it off best by saying, this is the hard part of paper cuts or the one-offs don't seem so bad. And she said, I mentioned to somebody at her church that her daughter isn't living with or speaking to her dad. And then that person at church said, well, has the dad done something egregious? And she said, no, he hasn't. But that's the thing. Nobody gets that there can still be abuse that isn't physical or sexual. She said, even sometimes I forget why she's mad at him because there really isn't one big thing. All that being said, she did share some examples. So her teenage daughter, this is uh, talking in regard to her teenage daughter, that her ex or the teenage daughter's father, he told her that he took down pictures of her in his house because he doesn't like being reminded of her. So right out of the gate, talk about emotional immaturity. And these narcissistic traits or tendencies all the way up to the narcissistic personality disorder, but that an adult human being can tell their teenage daughter that they are taking down all the pictures in the home because he doesn't want to be reminded of her because she is not doing what he wants her to do. And then assuming that that father thinks that for some reason that is going to then cause the daughter, the teenage daughter, oh, I could just go on (laughs) with this. To then go, oh my gosh, I am not showing up uh, the way that my dad would like for me to show up. The dad, it is on the father in that situation to recognize that my daughter does not feel uh, safe or comfortable with me. So that is a me thing. So I need to go in with curiosity and empathy and patience and long suffering and kindness and charity and on and on and on and then nurture and develop that relationship with that daughter. Here's the problem. If we are in that situation where that is happening, then I realize that train left that station a long time ago. So I want you to know the reason I like starting with this as an example is that this episode really is more for the person that is trying to uh, make sense of the nonsense or who is trying to say, okay, but what, you know, was I not nice enough to, did I not tell my daughter that she needs to go and be with him more? Because that's, no, that's not your job as the buffer. Because if anything, that is you being, you know, and I get it, wanting to be protective because you don't want to see your daughter hurt. But then all that is setting up is that the narcissistic ex-husband in this scenario gets to continue to say, well, I don't have a relationship because you didn't tell her to come talk to me. And sometimes the pathologically kind person will think, well, I, I haven't been, you know, so he's got a point. And I want her to say, wait a minute, he just did it again. Now he can blame it on me. He takes no accountability. 
So other things that this particular person shared, she said that her narcissistic ex, he told his brother, so the, the narcissistic ex's brother, not to support his daughter's tennis fundraiser because she's not living with him. So let's now get the entire family now to go against the teenage daughter and what emotional immaturity that is. He also told her that he wasn't going to take her to a family party because she, the teenage daughter, had set a boundary of meeting him and he wanted to meet alone to talk and she said that she would go if a friend could come. So she did not feel safe. And so he said, okay, well then if you don't feel safe, then I will not let you bring a friend. And now you can't, in essence, you can't have the pony. You You can't go to Disneyland. You can't go to the family party. So I will punish you and then you will see. And then you'll come around and you will do things my way, which is going to be a theme of some of the things that we're talking about today. Okay, for this next one, we're going to be talking about the body keeps the score or the the complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'm so grateful. This was someone that uh, is new in the group. And so I think it took a lot for her to share. She said, I would say my death by a thousand cuts would be how he has traumatized my nervous system. Not only does this come into play when I'm around him, but it is now also bled into my entire life. At home, I'm so jumpy even when there isn't an altercation. He has to know what I'm doing at all times. She said, not only that, I have to have an explanation ready to go when he questions even the smallest of things. I feel that there are things that people in a normal relationship take for granted when they they really just don't even think twice about it. And I'll, I'll read her entire and then I'll go back and make some comments. She said, I get nervous when I get in the shower, when I pick up my phone, if I have a smile on my face that doesn't pertain to him, if I'm doing anything out of what he perceives as my normal routine. If I walk outside to take the trash out, if I take our baby on a walk around the block, if I have my headphones on, if I'm writing in my journal, there are so many things that I have to second guess before doing them, anticipating his accusation-based questions. I find even away from home or when he's working, I still get jumpy about these things, partly because it has happened over and over and over, but also because even when I'm away from him, he's checking up on me. I could answer the phone as soon as he calls and be doing something as simple as watching TV, but it still warrants the questioning. Are you sure that's what you're doing? Well, what else have you been doing? What have you been doing the last hour? Who'd you talk to today? Who and what were you talking about? What are your plans? What are you about to do? Why did you take a shower that early? She said, it's amazing how this has become my life, and I didn't realize how draining it's been. His actions have transformed me into this person that he sees as acceptable, doing as much as I can to avoid questioning. This usually involves keeping myself busy with chores and cleaning up, for example, because then I usually don't get all the other questions. I even feel the need to go into detail about exactly what I've cleaned or the errands I've ran, because if not, then he doesn't believe that that's taken the time that it has. She said, I feel as if I'm doing something wrong if my daily routine isn't circled around things that need to be done. The moment I take time for myself, or she said, heaven forbid, do nothing and relax, it's absolutely questioned. She said, it's just a very stressful state to be in. And she said, she doesn't mind me sharing. So the reason I appreciate this is I think that this is a, is an extreme example of that just feeling like that she is walking on eggshells. But I feel like this covers most, most of the people that I work with to some point. And it's even just those, Oh, who were you talking to? Now in a healthy relationship, that's an opportunity for connection. Who were you talking to? But you have to feel like it. I mean, I, I just. I just say, here's who I was talking to, and here's the crazy story we talked about. Or I just say, we was talking to this person, and then the the emotionally healthy partner says, I don't know, anything fun to talk about there? And if you say, no, not really, okay. But the control is, who are you talking to? Well, why? What were you talking about? 
really? You said that? I mean, I, I don't know why you would have said that. I, I don't say those things or I kind of feel like that's the wrong thing to tell that person. And you start realizing love or control. And in those scenarios, love is, well, you're going to do whatever you're going to do. And I love you. And you are the person who you are. And I love you. Not, well, why did you do that? And I don't, yeah, I don't really like when you do that. Or I don't think you should have done that. That is control. And when that is just starts to bleed into everything that this person feels that they feel so controlled. And if you were listening to that, and I particularly looking at the thing where she says, I'm nervous when I get in the shower, I'm nervous, you know, or even at what time did I shower? I mean, I have people that if they, if they even take care of themselves for the day, then the narcissistic spouse says, well, why are you, why'd you get dressed up? Who are you going to see? You know, and then if you say, no, nobody, I just thought I would do this, then that's not being believed. It goes back to that nonviolent communication concept where the the person makes an observation and a judgment. So observation and judgment, if your spouse looks nice today, if your observation is, well, they must be going to see somebody or they must be cheating on me. And now you have to defend yourself. Then that is a really difficult place to come from. Because at that point, that is what leads to somebody just not even wanting to, to take care of themselves because they don't want to have to deal with the potential questioning or they just feel like if they take care of themselves and now they're questioned about it, they just go flat. And then they feel as if they are now handing that narcissist the, the confirmation that they were looking for. Okay, well, I guess if you're not, if you're not telling me where you're going, I'm sure you're doing something bad. So those, all of these, uh, just, she said, anticipating is accusation based questions. So anything, you know, what have you been up to? What have you been up to can be an amazing question when it is a bid for connection. But what have you been up to is a horrible question when it is one that is fishing for, well, if you start talking, then I'm sure I can find something that I don't like that you've done. Then I can now take the one up position. I can put you in the one down position and I can maintain my narcissistic supply. So that one really does break my heart. And when she talks about the end, she said, if I feel, I'm to feel like I'm doing something wrong, if my daily routine isn't circled around things that have to be done, the moment I take time for myself or do nothing and relax, that it's questioned. Because my number one rule in interacting with the emotionally immature narcissist in your life is raise your emotional baseline. And that is self-care and self-care is not selfish. And boy, she nails it though, because you need to relax. You need to be able to have downtime. You need to be able to meditate. You need to be able to do things that bring you peace and joy that are things that matter to you to be able to calm that central nervous system and, and then to allow you to have that confidence so that you can show up in a way that you can deal with all of the things that are happening around you in life. Because if you are constantly just in this state of, I got to just keep doing, I got to keep doing, or I'm going to be questioned, you can feel your own heart rate elevate and your anxiety spike and your cortisol just starts flooding through your brain. You are in fight or flight mode. And it's quoted in the body keeps the score, the neurons that, uh, that fire together, wire together. So over time, what it feels like to be you is somebody that is just on high alert, ready to go into fight or flight at any moment. So it takes time to get out of that situation, to be able to start to slowly, but surely lower your heart rate. So you can raise your emotional baseline. So you can show up in a way that will be the very best version of you. This one's short and sweet, but very fascinating. Someone said, he got so mad at me when I told him I was flying to visit my mom. He was upset that I spent the money on the flight. Then I told him that my mom bought the tickets. Then he flew off the handle because he said that he was the provider of the family. And now the mother's going to think that he can't provide. Then in the next breath, he said that, well, as a matter of fact, you should have got a job to pay for the flight yourself. If you want to do things like this, then you need to get a job. She said, meanwhile, he literally made me go on a work trip with him 
that will cost us at least double, if not triple, the cost of the flight to my mom's house, which, by the way, my mom was willing to pay for. She said he's a walking contradiction. This one, oh, the, every one of these is, it breaks my heart. That's why we have these. That's why we're having this episode today. Another person said, how about this under death by a thousand cuts, but also in the world of betrayal, betrayal trauma. She said, when we were married, I was suspecting that he was having an affair, but could never prove it. He denied always. Anytime I brought it up. One day I found a poem written by him on his phone about a beautiful brunette. I asked him about this and he quickly told me that I was the brunette. It's just that I dye my hair blonde and I had been for a long time. So she said, I believed him like every wife is supposed to do with their husbands. But after time, he continued to ask me, why don't you ever leave your hair? It's natural color. And I can say right now, you can see that now he's trying to build that case that no, no, he, he really was her. So he said, or I can remember him calling me a brunette in front of our friends while winking at me. And that was something that he never did before. And that's one of those concepts that I just, I cannot describe enough of when, when someone is not doing something naturally or organically, that it, it's more obvious than they think. So if he has never called you, why aren't you a brunette? Oh, my little brunette over there, wink, wink in front of friends. And that has never happened until he was caught with the poem about the brunette. Even he doesn't realize, oh, that's, that's not the way this normally works. And this is where I talk about, if you want to watch this stuff in action, just go on YouTube and find a channel that has interrogation videos. I watched another one this morning. It's so, I, I'm just mesmerized by them because you watch a person who thinks that they have created a narrative of how a quote normal person would have behaved in a situation, but now they're being interrogated by people that know exactly what to look for. And I feel like at times as a marriage therapist, you're almost like a marriage interrogator and why I love the, my four pillars of a connected conversation is you are giving this framework in essence so that you can see who doesn't know how to use a framework, who doesn't play in the sandbox, who weaponizes the tool and who takes this lifeline, this evidence-based lifeline and finally feels like they learned how to communicate. And now the couple is excited and they grow closer together versus the, when you are, you know, when somebody all of a sudden tells you they know exactly where they were seven months ago on a Tuesday night, because that's when they did you know, in, in the interrogation videos, that's when they murdered someone. So then they say, if somebody says, Hey, where were you on January 15th, you know, six months ago? And they say, I don't know. How about January 13th? Oh, the 13th. Oh yeah. I remember it was a Monday night. I was watching Monday night football, the cards playing the Packers. Uh, matter of fact, I remember having a thing of Fritos and bean dip somewhere around the third quarter. But at that point, I remember I left the bean dip open because I had to go to the bathroom and I worried, Oh my gosh, will the bean dip get hard? And that would be, but I can just stir it up. And so, and which no one does that has that. Why, why did he remember on that night? Oh, because he had murdered someone. And so he'd rehearsed the narrative over and over. So I know that I went on a tangent there a little bit, but that is the, oh no, I always uh, call you my little brunette and wink at you around our friends every single time since being caught writing a poem about the affair partner. That's a brunette that I've lied about. So of course she says, turns out the girl that he was cheating on with me was a brunette. And she said, I still react whenever I see a beautiful brunette or even the words brunette. She said, or one day while we were married, she said, I had a painting done in his hometown and a place in particular in the hometown. She said, we had moved down to her hometown. And she said, I just thought I wanted to bring a piece of his hometown down to us. I was grateful that we were in, in my hometown. And I assumed that that was maybe hard for him and he missed his hometown. So she said, I had a giant painting completed and I had commissioned an artist and I was so excited to give it to him for his birthday. I gave him to him. The kids were there and he looked and he said, what is this? You actually think this looks nice? I hope you didn't pay much for this. Kind of looks like a little kid painted it. Like, where'd you even find this artist? She said, I was devastated. 
I was so proud of this painting and this gift idea. She said, I still have the painting and I can't decide what to do with it. These comments he made on them went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And this woman said in particular, feel free to share. She said, I'll probably post more because I have so many of these examples now that I'm aware. And I feel like this is one where if you desire love and, and a connection with your spouse, this is where I really do feel like it is absolutely a good thing to take any gift and say thank you. It really is. Because when somebody throws out there the, really, you think this is good? This is crap. And, and I know people could argue, well, he's just being honest. No, he's being a jerk. I mean, that that one, again, what, what is the point of that? Even if you don't like it, then that's something that that other person that you care about, that's their emotional bid. They, with that painting is their heart. And so what a gift for somebody to hand me their heart and say, hey, I thought about you this much. Because then at that point, if I'm struggling with, I don't like it, honestly, it's a me issue. And as you can see in this example, yeah, it's a big old him issue. Now, if he was emotionally mature and he did say, I so appreciate that. And if she, you know, she's catching the vibe and saying, I feel like you're, there's a little something off. Oh, I mean, and I know I'm, I'm painting this amazing version of this story where there will be a pot of gold at the end. But an emotionally healthy version would be okay. He still is like so grateful and so much. And if she says, boy, you seem a little off. And then they have a, an emotionally mature conversation. It might be because he says, my hometown is not a place of happy memories. And that's why we're, we moved to your hometown. But I'm so grateful that you thought of it that way. And because now, now we got some good old self-confrontation. We're having a shared experience. And now we can process emotion together with another human being. And how beautiful is that? So none of that is happening with the interaction that I just shared. Next, one woman just shared a lot of just the little bullet points, but I so appreciated this because these are some of the ones that came up in earlier episodes as well that I continue to get emails about. Driving very, very slow when I was late, or even just if I made sure and say said, we got to get somewhere on time. And she didn't write this, but I could add because I get this one on a regular basis. Or of course, when he needs to get there, now it, it here comes control. There's going to be anger and, and rudeness and loud voices and because we will go or I will leave you. But if you want to go and you want to get there on time, then all of a sudden now he is uh, suddenly captivated by the getting a toothpick and, and cleaning things out of the grout on a kitchen counter, which is a very real story that I heard a few years ago. This one, they all, again, they break my heart. Taunting me with grocery money, holding it out and pulling it back. Hiding my bank card if I left it out to teach me a lesson. That one, hiding my fill in the blank, hiding my shoes, hiding my purse, hiding my coat, hiding my keys. That one I hear over and over again to teach me a lesson. So if anyone is more on the emotionally immature side and listening at this point, if somebody leaves something out, try this one. Hey, you forgot your keys. And I am putting a dramatic pause in here because that is an opportunity for the other person to say, thank you. I really appreciate that. And then, or sometimes you might say, I think you forgot your keys. And they may say, oh, I have another set. And then you say, oh, okay. And you leave together. It's an amazing experience. I, I sound like I'm being facetious and there's a little bit of that. But if I have to teach my spouse a lesson, I am a jerk. This is plain and simple. If I see an opportunity where I can be of service and help to my spouse so that she will not feel less than or feel dumb, what an opportunity. What a joy. She also shared refusing to be a Boy Scout dad until it was time for the Pinewood Derby when then he showed up looking like an involved dad. 
I could do episodes completely on, I don't know how many times I've had this conversation with people. And what's funny is I didn't grow up a scout. My son gave it a shot. And when it was Pinewood Derby time, I actually had post-traumatic stress disorder as a kid doing my own Pinewood Derby car and, and taking dead last. So in that moment, it was funny because I, I just thought, how many of these things are happening at Pinewood Derby Day? Are there the insecure dads like myself that don't know how to build things? Are there the kids that all they want to do is win because their dad is going to get mad at them if they don't win? Because I've processed plenty of those sessions as well. Or in walks dad of the year who, especially lately, I've had a couple of examples of people that go and buy their uh, Pinewood Derby car kit off of eBay or online, which, oh, if I would have had that opportunity when I was younger, but I digress. But those times, none of those are, are somebody showing up organically. Another woman said, how about the inability to resist interrupting with what he would have said or done when somebody is trying to concentrate or somebody is trying to study or, or him coming in with stupid jokes or making noise, anything for attention. Now here is where I can go back to my waking up to narcissism, my own narcissism, my own emotional immaturity. That one resonates because if I can make a funny face or a goofy noise, or if I can tell somebody a funny joke when they are busy, I realize that is something that the emotionally immature does often. And that is something I have noticed myself still at times wanting to all of a sudden remember. I remember something from earlier in the day and I want to show someone a video or a picture while they're doing something completely different. And so while I absolutely believe in spontaneity, there's a, I feel like there's now there's a difference between being spontaneous and then just saying, hey, we haven't had any attention on me in a little bit. So can we do that? Can I show you something or can I make a funny face and then you'll like it? I'm watching really am obsessed a bit with the show Sister Wives. And there are multiple occasions where the husband, Cody, will just all of a sudden take center stage. And there's been, I think, one or two weddings where, you know, he, he makes sure and does that and at the, at the last minute. And it's just one of those things where it's like, uh, hey, nobody's looking at me. Look, I just did a thing. I know it's their wedding, but look at me. She said, also... A time that we met downtown, my car got towed because I misunderstood a parking sign and he just drove off and he left me just walking along the city that I was unfamiliar with that we had just moved to. He eventually came back to me and and I would add in here and, and with the hopes that I had learned my lesson or chronically getting terse and grumpy on the kids' birthdays and sucking the oxygen out of the celebrations. This one becomes one of those that just becomes so consistent of the emotionally mature or narcissist. And I, I appreciate that sucking the oxygen out of celebrations. And I think on one of the earlier episodes, I talked about a woman who even in every one of their births, and then she'd had a, a few kids, there was an event. And one of the times the guy missed the actual birth because there Carl's Jr. I think had two sausage and egg biscuits for $5. So what are you going to do? Right. Or times where then just things were made about him. And it was almost as if subconsciously, if there was something that was going to absolutely be about somebody else, she said you could count on where's the sabotage going to occur. And it would it would happen in all kinds of things and not having things ready to go for a party, showing up late, leaving late. Just there were so many different things that were just so consistent on celebrations. Or she said, or giving the dead or indifferent affect in conversations to get me to be quiet or get to the point more quickly. And I feel like that's one that is so difficult that the narcissist or the emotionally immature, if it doesn't pertain to them or they don't feel like it matters, then it's hard for them to, to not show that on their face and they shut down. I remember having a conversation with someone at one point that I, I was fairly certain was narcissistic. And I couldn't help myself, but I just mentioned, hey, you know, I, I feel like you're not really very interested and that's okay. I think I'll just, I'm going to take off. 
And then all of a sudden they said, no, no, I am, I am. And then they just looked directly at, at me. And then as I'm talking, they nodded their head about three times normal than is, is per normal. And then started saying, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, well, wow. Oh boy. Okay. And I thought, oh, that, that's actually not the way a real conversation occurs. So while I could appreciate the effort, it was just really interesting in that moment where they went from, I could tell that they had a flat affect, but then they wanted to then uh, pretend that they were very interested. Let's get through a couple more. Okay, this one, I think is, uh, this one's really, really difficult. And I actually have had multiple conversations around this. So this, and thank you to this woman for expressing this. She said, I had a, a breast augmentation surgery after my last baby turned one. My husband was fully supportive of it, but wanted me to go quite big. She, and, and again, I feel like I just wanted to tell this woman this so far, I've had several of these conversations. She said, I had saved money for it myself while working at her job while pregnant. She said, I wanted to go a natural looking normal size just to feel like me again. My husband insisted on coming to the two pre-op appointments and he was pushing for the much bigger sizes on me. The nurse practitioner kept reiterating that those sizes were way too big for my body size. So we finally agreed on a size. The day of surgery, I ended up telling the surgeon to go 15 cc's smaller than what I told my husband prior. And she said the 15 cc's is like if you are someone, a religious person, the sacrament cup that you drink water or, or the grape juice out of. She said, I texted my husband just to let him know that the surgery went well and the size that I ended up going with. His response was so cruel and hurtful, saying that I was a deceitful liar. He can't believe that I would do that. And it's going to look awful and disgusting on me. She said, I then stayed at my mom's house that weekend to recover. And he didn't text or call once. When I came back home after two days, he moved out of our bedroom and continued to call me a liar and tell me I had a botched boob job and that I wasted my money because they looked terrible. And he continued to say that narrative for the next six months. He never once in the days or weeks following ever asked how I was feeling. The surgeon told me that there's literally no noticeable difference in 15 cc's bigger. So those are the things that just break my heart. Any opportunity that the person has for control. Because first of all, the answer is whatever size you would like, period. So then for him going in to try to talk her into what she needed to do with her body, it just becomes beyond frustrating. And so then even if she decides, okay, I'm not going to go with that size, then nothing more for a husband than, okay, thanks for letting me know. So I think that people hearing this, it won't necessarily just be about the breast augmentation surgery. It will be about coming home from the hospital after birth. It, you know, it can be, a, I've had an example of a guy who got an ACL surgery and his wife not showing up for him post-op, but it will be that concept of where if that person, if the narcissist in the relationship has a medical procedure, the pathologically kind person will do anything and everything they can to take care of that person. But then if the pathologically kind person is taking care of, has something go on, then that really is an inconvenience for the narcissist. And they still have work to do. They still have things to do. And so what were you expecting? And just that inconsistency or the consistency of the invalidation speaks volumes. Let's get to a couple more and then we'll wrap things up today. Another interesting anecdote that someone shared to me, she said that on her wedding day, so given a little bit of context, she was talking about the wedding day being a difficult moment or being a difficult day as it would come up each year as the relationship continued to to get worse. And then at one point when they had separated, now this brings us up to where she's telling the story. She says, another interesting anecdote is that on our wedding day, a year later, this was just this past, this past year, she said, I tried to forget all about the day. 
She said, I was also gray rocking and not giving him much attention at all those days. And for those who are unfamiliar with gray rocking, gray rocking is one of the, the, the many techniques that people use to protect themselves from abuse. I'm reading from medicalnewstoday.com. It involves becoming as uninteresting as possible to the abusive person. This may require a person to hide their feelings, avoid revealing personal information, and minimizing contact. And sometimes people use the gray rock method when interacting with people they believe have narcissistic personality disorder or traits and tendencies. And according to Medical News Today, however, a relationship can be harmful regardless of whether a person has a personality disorder and whether the abuse is intentional. And they even go on to say it's unclear whether the gray rock method reliably works. It may have risks as long as the person is in contact with the perpetrator. And I would say that the gray rock method is similar to my popcorn moments. You're just sitting back and watching the show. But she said that she had been gray rocking him and not giving me much attention. He knew I was feeling bad about some other things. I believe they might have had some co-parenting challenges or issues. So she said at one point he called me. And again, this was on the day, the wedding day, but while they'd been separated. And she said, I didn't respond. And then he texted me an emoji flower. And she said, I didn't respond. A few days later, we were talking and he blamed me for being distant and neglectful. And she said, it turned out the flower emoji was sent to me on our wedding day. And I hadn't even registered because I wouldn't even have imagined that he cared. So he had sent this wedding, this flower emoji back when they were actually married. He then said, I wanted to come over on our wedding day. I thought it would have been nice to bring you some flowers and just have a glass of wine. And she says, I was shocked. And I told him I wouldn't have been able to do that, I don't think. And because of what has happened in our past on wedding days, she said, I I couldn't have done that. But then here's the part that I really appreciate about this story. She said, later I processed and I thought, if he actually had wanted to do that, then why didn't he text me exactly what he wanted to do? Why didn't he even mention our wedding day in his message? It was a flower emoji. And I told him I was having a bad time over some other stuff. So I thought it was about that. And I love that she went on to say she's having many revelations like that when you realize how does a normal human being operate. And if they want to share a a thought, a story, then they share a thought or a story. So they don't just send some coded message out and then see if the person takes the bait. Because now he can say, oh, I had perfectly good intentions. If you would have reached back out to me, we would have had an amazing experience. I would have been incredibly emotionally mature. We could have talked about the kids and co-parenting. And you would have seen that I have changed. But instead, he, I believe, and I don't know him, but confabulated a good narrative that, well, how can I, how can I make her feel bad? Oh, I'll, t- I'll tell you what. Oh, yeah, I, that, that's what I meant with that flower emoji. And she said, as I write this, I have so many revelations. And she said she's going to talk to her therapist about it. And I love that she said that with her therapist, they're doing amazing conversations where she said, I talk to my narcissistic ex as if he's in the other chair. And then I take his perspective and I change chairs and talk as if I was him. She said it's really helping her process and seeing the craziness of the conversations and the dynamics. And I love that. I have not done, they call a, that is a little bit of an of empty chair technique. And I have not done that myself in my practice, but I know that that is a, a it can be a very powerful technique. I, I think often, even in the way that I do this, I love having somebody talk through and then what did he say or what did she say? And so when the person, the pathologically kind person in my office is saying, but maybe I took things wrong. And, but then when they start talking through, they know, they know what that conversation would sound like. So I love what she's saying. And then when they say it out loud, which is the key then you can typically get to the point where, okay, yeah, this is where, again, I have overlooked a a lot of these. I turned some red flags yellow, I guess, is a better way to put that. 
another person shared, she said, one thing that I noticed the other day is how emotionally immature, how my hus- emotionally immature husband seems to see everything as a slight against him and can play the victim in such odd ways that this is a fabulous story. I'm going to change a little bit of the details. But she said she uh, she went with their son and her to, it was a music class and he usually isn't able to go and the son is under the age of three. And when the son's at music class, he mostly just runs around because he's encouraged because he's under three. And he comes up every once in a while and he will hug. He will hug his mom. So with both of the people being there, he just went over and would hug one of them and then run off again. But she said it was split pretty evenly. However, almost every single time that he would hug the wife, then the husband would comment something like, oh, okay, mom's your favorite. I'm just second fiddle, but I'm okay with that. All while smiling, looking around at everybody else for approval. She said, it took me a while to figure out why it bothered me so much, because if he really didn't care, he wouldn't feel the need to comment every time that that happened. And how will that make the son feel when he's old enough to understand that showing affection toward the wife, his mom, is going to hurt dad's feelings? And the way that he's expressing his hurt while pretending that he's not hurt at all can be crazy making. And and that point alone is showing how that's going to be modeled. So you better choose dad or dad is going to be upset. And so it, the kid is going to freeze and they're going to start now in their own caretaking role and and having to try to manage the emotions of if, if let's just say that he even sees that mom's hurt later, emotionally down or withdrawn. And he wants to go rescue because now he's programmed to rescue. And then but then he sees dad walk in the room and now all of a sudden he's got a decision to make. I know dad will get mad. And mom, I don't know, she's the one that usually buffers. And you can just see that now we're teaching our kids to caretake and to put their needs aside and to try to manage the room and and then to try to calm everyone's anxiety. So we're creating, in essence, a highly sensitive person who will then look for someone that they may need to caretake. And that can be really difficult to watch uh, as that child grows up. Another person just simply said when she's crying or frustrated, and she said, I, I need you. You know, I, this would, I would just love for you just to be nice. And then her husband shouting, I was nice to you all morning. Doesn't that count for anything? We'll wrap this up with another person shared when my sister passed away, who was my best friend, we were at the graveside and it was a very sudden death and I was barely able to function. And he was just hugging and talking to everybody. And she said, I was just standing there basically by myself and finally had to say, can I get a hug from you? And she said, that was one of her aha moments because of his, even his reaction to her request or ask where he realized he doesn't really care about me. Now, again, here's why I want to share that one as we wrap things up is uh, somebody simply hearing this example, especially maybe someone that we've referred to in the past as a Switzerland friend, meaning that they are one who just immediately, and I understand this goes to, well, there's two sides to every story. Maybe he was going through a lot himself, maybe that he was close to her as well. And he knew that the two of you would be able to reconnect later. So they may say that this person that is sharing this example is being a bit more dramatic. But here's where I want to say that with that person who left the last comment, I I know far more to that story. And I know that this person was often told by their husband that she was the problem. There was one time that I think this is just such a, a phenomenal example that then I would see over and over again in my practice when working with the narcissistic or emotionally immature. One time he had mentioned that and he said, even uh, even his doctor agreed that his wife at that time needed to be on medication and needed professional help. So let's just pause. Let's break this one down for a second and go back to that example that I gave about watching the interrogation videos. And the person who's being interrogated thinks that they are saying things that make absolute perfect sense, saying that things will things that will prove their point, their manipulative point, that all of these people agree with them that their wife is crazy and therefore she is the problem. She needs to do something, not him, but her. 
He has to have that external validation because he's making things up, but he's unwilling to self-confront. And so he's literally creating that narrative on the fly and believing it in real time, which makes the gaslighting just flow out of him like water. Because in that scenario, I did, I specifically said, well, we should probably get on a call with that doctor because if the doctor was able to make a diagnosis off of the husband's description of his wife during his appointment, I might add, because how many times have you been to the doctor and they just had some time to kill and you go through all the things that you were there to talk to the doctor about and then you say, hey doc, let me tell you a couple of things about my wife who you don't know, by the way, and then can you give me your professional opinion, one that ends with, I might add, any medical diagnosis that you are so sure of that she needs medical intervention? I mean, it's insanity. And in that situation, admittedly, that was one of the times where I suggested that we just get on a phone call with the doctor again. And uh, shockingly, he said that he knew that doctor was busy and he didn't want to bother her. But apparently she wasn't too busy to take the extra time out of his appointment to make a formal diagnosis, including psychopharmacological intervention on the day of his appointment. So this person had other examples that were similar of its triangulation. One, he said he had been telling his sister about all of his then wife's problems. And he also brought that out in therapy. And at that point, and again, look at what that person's saying. They're looking over at me thinking, oh man, no, that's, this is so normal when people come in and, and then tell me. And even though we're here to talk about the way to communicate as a couple, but yeah, let's put the, the evidence-based models that I've worked with uh, over a thousand couples on that root out emotional immaturity or personality disorders. I'm going to put those on hold because it, apparently you've talked to your sister and she also agrees that your wife is crazy. So a great time to bring that up. And then I will agree with you. We can all tell her that she's crazy. She'll say, I did not even know I was crazy. And then that will make perfect sense because that's the way therapy works. I mean, just if you look at it that way, it just, it's, it's so insane. But I, I, his wife at that point or the wife at that time, at that point she was onto it and she just said, Oh, I would love to hear her opinion. Why don't we just shoot her a text right now? And shockingly yet again, he did not think that that was a good idea. So a uh, death by a thousand cuts is filled with these just tiny cuts, these tiny interactions. I admitted, I, I mentioned uh, sister wives earlier. I'm recording part of this episode, the, this waking up the narcissism episode on a second day as evidenced by, if you're watching this on YouTube, my change of attire. But uh, in the episode that we were watching last night, the uh, husband was talking about divorce with one of his wives. And as I was watching, I, I believe I was viewing a classic narcissistic move. I'm not diagnosing anyone, mind you. That is not my place since I'm not working with anyone on the show. Not that I wouldn't love to, but I believe that I was witnessing some extreme emotional immaturity when Cody shared that if he and his wife, Christine, were going to divorce, that they needed to present this co-parenting agreement or else the state would immediately take the kids. They would become wards of the state. And I bring this example simply because when I have worked with people going through divorce, for example... Typically, the more emotionally immature person has all kinds of thoughts, facts, ideas on what that divorce process entails, despite the fact that they may have never met with an attorney or been divorced before, but they absolutely know what is going to happen. And that once again represents a bigger picture of the person simply spouting out words in one moment, confabulating a story that fits their narrative, even in that moment that he knew more than she did, that he was smarter and she was not as smart and she didn't know even what she was getting into, but he did. One day I would love to do a complete deep dive on a reaction to that entire series of that show. But I do have enough material now for additional Thousand Cuts episodes, but I would love to hear more. And I feel like every time that I have shared one of these episodes, the three previous ones, this is where I get a, a number of emails of people saying, okay, this this is my life. And so many people feel like, well, isn't everybody going through that kind of insanity? And they're not. Relationships aren't perfect by any means. 
But when this is the air that you breathe in your relationship of just feeling like there's just this complete insanity and these small things that happen over and over again and the gaslighting and that you cannot even have your own thoughts or feelings or opinions and you hold back because you aren't even sure if I should even bring something up because it usually doesn't go well and you're trying to figure out when is the best time to finally bring up something that I just have to say because it's affecting the kids, it's affecting my mental health or it's something that we need to talk about. But when we do, then things just go bad. That is not normal. And that's what I I would love for you to start to just even think about looking for help, whether it's uh, professional help or turning to people that are non-Switzerland friends just to start to feel like you, you are not crazy because you're not, you're being, there's a good chance you're being emotionally manipulated or abused. And, and this is just part of the process, the process of awakening and uh, waking up to that narcissism. Or if you are listening to this and I, again, I'm so open about this is all created Initially, because of understanding my own emotional immaturity, narcissistic traits and tendencies, and uh, and it, it can be really difficult to sit with that and to self-confront, but that is the beginning of healing of your own as well. So I just appreciate you taking the time. I would love to hear more stories. I would love to hear your examples of death by a thousand cuts. And, and I want to say uh, men who are in relationships with emotionally immature women, I see you too. I do. I work with you. I am working with a few in my practice right now, and I know that you are experiencing a similar but completely different level of your own feelings of internal guilt and shame and it is hard to open up about your situation but please send me your examples as well i know the traits and tendencies no no gender but the majority of emotionally mature narcissistic people that i see and according to the data i've shared in previous episodes are men but i have worked with truly hundreds of men over my career who are in similar situations. So I want your stories too. I do want to hear from you. So thanks for taking the time and uh, feel free to share these episodes, especially these death by a thousand cuts episodes, because I think these are the ones that really, really hit and people really understand these and they start to resonate and people start to wake up to their own, the, the narcissism or the emotional immaturity in their relationships. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on waking up the narcissism.